0: Janico Kelk, pronouns he, him, is an ecologist and wildlife photography enthusiast, a precursor to his pursuit of this career path. From exciting short-term roles, catching animals for field guide photography and Netflix documentaries, to more stable long-term roles, Janico's passion and career has taken him all around Australia and all over the world. We caught up with him to talk about his experience within the wildlife industry the merits of shorter-term contracts compared with permanent positions, as well as his advice for people navigating this space. Welcome to Nico. Hello and welcome to It's a Wildlife, podcast and blog sharing the great work being done for wildlife conservation worldwide and solving problems for ecologists by ecologists. If you're a fellow wildlifer, whether you're just starting out or you've been about the traps for a while, Tune in and let's chat. You're in the right place.
1: Hello, g'day. Um, my name is Juniko Kelk. I'm a wildlife ecologist. I'm currently at Parad Recovery, a feral free fenced off reserve in South Australia. Um, right now, I'm doing a small contract for pest management, uh, so I should be here till roughly August. But prior to that, I was a wildlife ecologist for WSP, which is one of the largest engineering firms in the world. We had a team of 40 ecologists all around Australia. Um, I was based in Brisbane, and our work sort of took us all around Australia, basically. Um, I've worked in the Northern Territory, far of Queensland, Brigolo Belt, the Western Ranges of New South Wales snowy mountains uh mildura yeah a lot of t- cool places but yeah i kind of gave those guys a flick recently uh, for a bunch of different reasons mostly because i wanted to move to part north queensland we couldn't really work that out but yeah so i'm basically an ecologist i guess but otherwise i'm really into wildlife photography which sort of was the precursor to becoming an ecologist so i pretty much spent like my early 20s running around australia just looking for reptiles and then graduated to finding reptiles and frogs overseas and then to fund that, I wasn't a fauna spot, a catcher. It's kind of a really common job in Queensland. So what that is, like, whenever there's a development, like they're building a mine or a gas plant or a road or some houses, they need people to go through and do, like, a really rapid assessment and be like, oh, cool, there might be X animals living here, here, and here. You mark up all the habitat. And then you're there with the construction crew as like they go through and clear the habitat. It sounds really depressing and it is kind of depressing, but it's a good way to learn how to handle animals very quickly and think on your feet. But also you sort of understand how these developments actually occur. So then when you become a consulting ecologist, if that ever happens, you can sort of understand what happens when someone builds a road or mine, you actually understand quite intimately what these impacts are going to be. Because sometimes like people talk about Land clearing or habitat destruction in this really abstract way. But like when you work as a fauna spotter catcher, you see it very close. (laughs) So it's a good way to get that context. But yeah, eventually I hit a ceiling. So I went back and got my ecology degree. And after that, I was working as an ecologist. Like, that, I pretty much hit the ground running. But there was also that five years of being a former spotter catcher. Uh, in between my full-time work, I do a bunch of small contracts for people like Arab Recovery, South Endeavour, a bunch of different other small conservation NGOs.
0: My goodness, you've certainly been all over the place. Really wonderful to hear how your story has just flowed on.
1: Yeah, it didn't seem like it was flowing at the time, but yeah, it's kind of worked out.
0: <laughs> it's always interesting, isn't it? In hindsight, everything makes total sense and it's always easy to sort of tell your story in a real progressional way, shall we say. But at the time, you had no idea what was coming next.
1: Yeah, sort of just stumbling around. It's um, quite frustrating at the time, but then it sort of all works out. And that was some advice I got from an ecologist pretty early on. It's like the first three to five years are going to be rubbish and then like eventually it just works out. So yeah, I think people should keep that in mind.
0: That's wonderful. And I actually think just listening to your story that you are in such a unique Boat because you came to ecology through photography.
1: Yeah. So I was kind of always interested in wildlife growing up. I was like that weird kid that would just run around catching snakes and put them in shoeboxes, and then your mum would just go, Absolutely bananas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was a fun time. But then got to like my teen years and sort of forgot about all that. um, School and other stuff popped up. And then after I graduated school, I started getting back into wildlife again and I found this online community. And part of that online community had people that go out herping. So herping is the hobby of looking for wild reptiles and frogs. I eventually met up with a couple of these guys and we went on herping trips around Australia. And one of the things I wanted to do was document what we're doing, taking photos of all the animals we're finding. So I got really obsessed with herping from age like 21, till about 28. And I spent most of my free time just running around the country and running around overseas. And eventually it wasn't even really about finding as many animals as possible. It was about taking the nicest photo possible. The balance of it changed. And during that time, when I was about 24, I met my partner, Jasmine Vink, who's a very good photographer as well. And so we sort of complemented each other perfectly and we started taking photos together around Australia and overseas, particularly Southeast Asia. And she was an ecologist. So I kind of jumped in her wake basically and led to me studying ecology essentially. But the other thing is like, it's really good for networking. Like I've met heaps of my friends who are ecologists through photography, not just in Australia, but all around the world. Like you make a really good network just by doing photography. So it's quite handy when it comes to looking for a job or like seeing what research projects are out there.
0: Absolutely. And I guess before we go any further, did you mind talking about where people could actually find some of your photography?
1: So you can find most of it on Instagram. If you look up Ginny Kelk. there's only one of me. So <laughs> it's all there. I've sort of started using TikTok, but haven't really quite got my head around it, which feels weird because like now I feel like a dinosaur at age 30. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Something that struck me when I saw it, almost immediately was how close and personal you were getting to a lot of venomous snakes. Can you talk a little bit about snake handling, how you avoid the bitey end? Um, So I kind of just
1: worked it out sort of used to pick up snakes growing up and sometimes it doesn't end well and sometimes it doesn't but a lot of it's just keeping it calm if you're freaking out the animal's freaking out and that's sort of the end of that story there's some animals that just shouldn't be screwed with and you've got to work that out as you go but also like there's a lot of permits involved too so i do it a lot for work most people shouldn't just be out grabbing animals willy-nilly if you don't have the right training and i got that training as i started working as well like i know i said i sort of just used to work it out as a kid but as i started my professional career i was provided that training and one of the guys i'm working with right now was actually a professional snake handler teacher so I've got good friends to show me what to do I guess
0: yes absolutely by no means recommending that people go out and start tailing venomous snakes
1: <laughs> yeah it's not ideal
0: <laughs> you did mention how calm you are when you're handling these animals Have you ever felt fear of these creatures?
1: Sometimes. Sometimes when you realise just where you are, like there was a few times when I was in Ecuador, we were really remote, probably the most remote I've been. In terms of distance away from a city, it's not that far, but like the amount of time and effort to get to a hospital or even like a car is astronomical. So where we were, was called the Choco, and the nearest hospital was one flight away, one bus ride away and one boat ride away. Plus a four hour drive. So, like, having that understanding in the back of my head, if something goes wrong, you're sort of done.
0: That's the end.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, like, when it comes to those situations, I'm much more careful. I don't take any chances. Yeah, it's a totally different game. And then, like, it's different when you're doing it for work as well. If I'm overseas handling snakes uh, for photos or just like for surveys, it's very different when I'm on a mine site or a gas plant. Like, they're just two different ways of handling snakes because one's really hands off and one's quick and easy like into a bag and to relocate so yeah there's sort of like two ways of doing things but it's also just practice there's sometimes you just should just let an animal go as well like there's no point stressing it out just for a photo and that's something i've learned over time the thing about herping there's no guideline to it where like birding there's like official guidelines on how to go about things and the community is very open about these guidelines where herping that's like work it out for yourself people have their own idea of what's ethical and what's not at that stage as well. So if there could be any way to like change that, that'd be awesome. But I don't see it happening anytime soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So many of these jobs that you're speaking about have been short-term contracts here, there, everywhere. How do you find your sense of I guess stability or continuity in your life when you're moving around so much?
1: Yeah. So when I was working with WSP, I was like a full-time ecologist and I was doing that for about two years. So we had heaps of different projects all around Australia but I was full-time so that was quite stable that allowed me to do many cool adult things like buy a house and just be normal and have savings but that was nice so that's like the great thing about consulting is like generally you work on a full-time or part-time basis and the idea of small contracts just so sort of goes away but when I'm doing small contracts yeah you just gotta have your fingers in a bunch of different pies and that's where like the networking sort of gets really handy and often work leads to more work so that can be stressful because sometimes it doesn't lead to more work and you're like oh well, that was a waste of time I
0: was kind of banking on that
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I was banking on that I've had that conversation a lot like damn but like the thing with networking too is that a lot of people expect immediate gain which is not how networking works this is like the best thing go to a conference meet some people go out to the pub after the talk and just start talking and have a few drinks you might not hear from that person for like two or three years but then you get a call like hey remember that time we did this and then i've got the perfect project where we can collaborate and we can work together and that has happened to me numerous times arid recovery like i came here as a volunteer in 2019 and then i came here as the intern the year after and then i was <laughs> another here's another weird small contract that i had i came here in 2020 to work with a netflix documentary to look for bilby's at arid recovery so that was bizarre and now i'm here doing another short-term contract but like that relationship started in 2019
0: i think that's a really valuable comment it's certainly something that i found from my network is that it's Always surprises me. Yeah,
1: it's good to keep your options open and just sort of go with the flow, I guess. Seriously, though, having a full time job was awesome. Like, it was really useful and having that stability was quite nice. And like, I'll very likely go back to having a full time job later this year, maybe start of next year, just depending on how things are progressing. But yeah, I just wanted to come back to our recovery because its I just love this place. Like, it's really cool.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned your internship. Did you want to talk about the importance of taking on practical roles like internships early on in your career and whether or not you'd recommend it?
1: That's a good question. It depends what you want to do, I guess. If you want to work in research, then maybe doing an internship is a really good idea to understand what research actually is. With interns and volunteering, a lot of people do volunteering that I think is quite pointless because like going out and doing a really cool survey doesn't really show you what research is. Going out and setting traps up, like anyone can do that, but doing the data collection, going through the data, analyzing thousands upon thousands of camera trap photos, that's more valuable, I guess. So if that's what you want to do in terms of working in research, then doing an internship is a really good idea because it gives you an understanding of what is involved. It didn't really help me in terms of being a consultant or a field biologist. It gave me some really cool skills in terms of camera trapping and setting up my own projects. So that was cool. And I wouldn't have got that at like a short term volunteering, if that makes sense. So I guess it depends what you want to do. Because I've met plenty of colleges, like if not most of them that never did um, internships. So it really depends on what you want to do. It seems to be like the pathway if you want to work in straight conservation, but like there's just not enough jobs to sustain everyone doing that, if that makes sense. And if you work as a consultant, you will get that experience anyway that an internship will provide you and you'll be getting paid the whole time. So like it won't be as fun or as glamorous, that's for sure. But there's like different ways to get that experience, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the time when people are coming into working in the the wildlife conservation space, shall we say, it's very easy to overlook the skills and experience that you do have and that you might have gained from things. And that discourages people from applying for entry-level positions with consultancies.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Because they think, oh, I haven't done an internship or I haven't done enough volunteering. But, I mean when's enough
1: yeah when is enough and that's like not even really your fault like right now we hired someone who was like fresh out of university like she had just graduated but had like no prior experience and like that's a great thing that's an amazing thing because we're giving someone a fresh start and like a really good opportunity but like i was kind of selfishly kind of annoyed it's like man i worked five years doing stuff and like i have to go through the hard yards But no, like what I'm getting at, it's just a really good time to be an ecologist right now. But when I started, it was kind of difficult. Like jobs were hard to get. So like you do have to do other things. So it's not even about you a lot of the time.
0: I mean, yeah, I think taking a step back and saying it's not a reflection of me. It's a reflection of the ecosystem, (laughs) the job system right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes just like right place, right time. That's the thing that I've found most is like you've just got to put yourself in places that might be at the right time, if that makes sense. Yeah. So like an internship is really good for that as well. I will say that is like an internship will get you in front of a bunch of different people who may have opportunities for you Mm -hmm. down the road. So a lot of it's right time, right place and knowing the right people. And yeah, that sucks when you're in university, you don't really know anyone. I guess that's where I sort of had the upper hand is because I spent so much time herping and like just talking to people. Yeah, that was really useful.
0: I think that's a really important point to get out there, though. You have done nothing but follow your passion throughout your journey. And as it happens, even though you don't know it at the time, most of the time something comes through for you when you need it in the form of work.
1: Yeah, you can make a career out of finding geckos. That's what me um, and my mate say. And I know people are just like, just gun birders, and that's how they've got their job. Like, if you want to work with wind farms, birds are a huge thing. Same with microbats. So if you're just really passionate about certain subgroup of animals, you can make that into a career. You just got to find a way how.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't know what you're passionate about, that's a really good place to start.
1: It's a good way to be like, yeah, I know quite a few people like that who just... Mostly did field work or like herping, birding, looking for mammals just in their free time. And that's how they got their skills.
0: I think that's amazing. And I think that's really good advice for people who might be sort of at a loose end and not sure what to do next. It's like, how about going within and being like, what do I love? What would I love to make into my career if I could choose anything? Mm. I think it's a great way to approach it. Now, I did want to debunk. One myth. This is relating to photography of reptiles in particular. Once upon a time I was told that the best way to photograph a snake was to put a saucepan on top of it. Yeah
1: a lot of people do that. I tend not to do that anymore because I'm very specific in the way that I want my photos to look but that is a very common way that people do take photos of snakes.
0: (laughs) Oh fair enough and so Through your photography, have you found that people are able to maybe connect more to these animals that they might not typically encounter in their everyday life?
1: Yeah, I'm of two minds about this. Hey, I think people overstep how important photography is because there's a lot of good photos out there and there's a lot of rubbish photos out there. It sort of just gets lost in the ether of the internet. When you have things like Planet Earth 2, Blue Planet, like those blue chip documentaries, like they're great for science comms and getting people to care about things. So I'm a bit iffy about like how important photography is, but I do think it does change people's minds. Like I'm not going to say like it doesn't. I just think people really overstep like how much it does. So one of the things I really like doing is taking photos of threatened mammals that no one really knows much about outside of the sphere of wildlife people. So I got really obsessed with quolls, bilbies, shark bait bandicoots and telling their stories. I find that quite rewarding. And every now and again, I get a few messages just saying like, oh, I didn't even know that animal existed. And then you can sort of forward them to like, oh, yeah, this is our recovery. They protect X, Y, Z. Or um, this is South Endeavor, which is another... Mob that I work for, they project these bats or these quolls. So you can put them forward to the right places. But yeah, I think it does have a role to play in terms of education, but a lot of people overstep how much it actually does just because there's so much crap out there.
0: (laughs) You make a very valid point. Without being able to back that image up with the information and the awareness of the groups that are out there trying to protect these creatures, it doesn't have the impact.
1: Yeah. And I find like making it a story is much more impactful as well. That's something I've noticed. I generally tell these stories in the way that, like, I find the animal, how long it took me, or like, this is what I had to do to do it, or like, these are the researchers I had to talk to, and I got their advice on how to take these photos and so on and so forth. Like, I find that gets a lot more engagement, and people really start to take notice of that rather than like putting up a cool photo of like a nice endangered animal, I'm like, oh, you know, this is endangered. There's 3,000 of them left. They're not doing very well. People just sort of shut off and they don't really care. So, finding a way to get people engaged in it, that's the hard part. And that's why those blue chip documents are so good because they're really engaging
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely and I guess by putting your story there it humanizes the experience that you had and it allows people to I guess connect with the image and with your story there's a lot of issues that take place in the world a lot of species that are threatened and because it's all such bad news people kind of just put it all in the too hard basket
1: yeah people tend to like just turn off as soon as you start saying like this will be extinct and blah 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 so you have got to like slide it in there slowly but yeah like another way to get past that I found is like literally showing the journey to find it I think a lot of people engage with that I got really obsessed with crayfish for a little while like freshwater spiny crayfish
0: of course you did
1: (laughs) yeah yeah I know like just to make it difficult for myself there's a couple of species that live on like montane streams in high altitudes. And like, just to get to those areas is a 15-kilometer hike, and just showing people like what you have to do to get to that spot because like this animal is so rare, blah, 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 blah. That journey is really interesting to people. And then you can like end with like, yeah, this is critically endangered for XYZ reasons. And like, sometimes you can even show the reasons. Like, um, one of them is critically endangered because of pigs. And like, I'm just walking around, like, yeah, there's pig willows all around these creeks and it's like it's more engaging like you're like showing the journey to find it as opposed to like just writing this animal will be extinct <laughs> like it's just not very fun
0: no absolutely so many people have no idea these things even exist or how to find them so by selecting a target species and then bringing people with you they're much more engaged when you actually find it
1: yeah that's basically what's happened to me <laughs> that's what I'm banking on anyway
0: something that I did want to ask you about is what some of your advice would be for people looking to get into wildlife and also wildlife photography
1: oh okay if you want to just get into photography just get a camera and go out and take photos it sounds really blunt but like honestly that's the only way you get into it get the most expensive body you can get and some nice lenses even one nice lens and just go for it there's no point sitting around just talking about it and then the other thing is like look at other photos that you like because that's the best way to learn is like just look at other photographers who you like their style look at what gear they're using and try to emulate that and there's always budget options as well like you don't have to buy the best gear that's what i found the only reason I've got nice gear now is because I can afford it, but that took me like 10 years to do. So like I had a lot of time where I had not much money. And it's only now that I've started to like progress in my career, I guess, that I've got like a little bit of money to play around with. So yeah, just go out and take photos, I guess. Uh, and then for ecology, one of the best bits of advice I ever got was get rid of the idea of a dream job because like there's no such thing. Like there's really cool jobs out there, don't get me wrong. And I've Been really lucky to do a couple of them. But each job has its own sacrifices, whether it's socially, money, the amount of time that you're away from home, where you might have to live. Every job will have its downfalls and some will have heaps of pros and whatnot. And like when you have this idea of a dream job, you tend to be really close to other opportunities that might arise. And those opportunities could lead to something even cooler and better and whatnot. So get rid of the idea of a dream job. Never helped me. It just got me like really annoyed at myself because I couldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. Whereas once I got rid of that idea, I started doing heaps of cool things. And that was really good for me.
0: I love that.
1: And like in terms of those sacrifices, I've been in the field pretty much constantly since October. (laughs) So like I've not really spent much time at home with my partner and eventually that is just going to get old and I'd like to go home. Like I'm pretty happy now, but the sacrifices, I mean, one of my other mates had to move away from a support network, like a family and whatnot and friends to like a rural region. And she's having a ball, but then like the the other part of that is like she's not got that support network that's really important to everyone. I'm a big believer in not believing in a dream job.
0: (laughs) No, I love that.
1: Yeah, just being open to opportunities and putting yourself out there, doing jobs that you might not think sound good. Like Some of the coolest surveys I've done and some of the best work I've done that's had the most positive environmental impacts were for mines and most people would find that quite strange. Yeah, and if someone told me that when I first started, I just would have said no, like I wouldn't want to do it. But now that I've done a few, I was like, right, you can have a really good environmental outcomes here if you play your card right.
0: Absolutely.
1: I guess the other part of it too is like you are not your job. That's something that I feel most ecologists like a lot of difficulty splitting is like where their professional life and their social life, where the separation is, because most of my friends are ecologists and when we get together, all we talk about is ecology. So it's like, it's really hard to separate that at times, but I think it's really healthy to have that. So trying to find that split and being open to opportunities is really nice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you have advice for people from your experience, how you've maintained somewhat of a work-life balance when you're in these remote? placements not
1: really (laughs) I'm still working that out hey me and my partner tend to have long-term goals so like our next one is to move to far north Queensland and that's what we're working to now yeah having those long-term goals and then when you do get home like really making the most of being able to see your friends but also like hanging out By yourself at home and having like your own grounding. That's nice. Mm. Before I leave to go anywhere for any long amount of time, I try and see friends and family at least once. Otherwise, I'm just never home. Yeah, just finding time. And that's always very difficult when you first start because you're always trying to say yes to stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And do you have any advice for people on how to navigate living, working in a remote location? Like, what would you wish that you knew if you could go back in time?
1: Get really good hiking shoes. (laughs) having really nice hiking clothes like don't skimp out on that because you end up just wearing like the same three pairs of pants for like three months (laughs) so you better hope that they don't rip just touching base of everyone via your phone taking the time to like get reception and like talk to your friends or partners or family or whatever always just sort of found it pretty easy to work remotely to be honest never really bothered me mostly because like I've grown up in this time frame where like most places have reception but like the other part of it too is my partner is very like she's an ecologist as well and she does equally as fun jobs in equally remote places so we're both very understanding of what we do
0: yeah absolutely trying to explain to people why you're never there is like oh my god yeah (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah like you do just have like really cool experiences as well so that's the other thing that balances out like just man I've seen some cool stuff like just oh man there was this one survey it was a volunteer thing and that was really fun up in the Kimberley on sunset when all the little red flying foxes come back oh man that is just stunning my eyes (laughs) it's like it's so beautiful (laughs) seeing stuff like that it's yeah you can't pay for those experiences it's rad
0: Absolutely, no. It's it's fantastic that you say that, and it really brings it back to what you said at the start, which was there's pros and cons to every job.
1: And just to bring it back to that, it's like I've met some friends who thought they got their dream job, and it just sucked. (laughs) Yeah, it just didn't work out. And there's been a few of those. Like a lot of jobs sound really cool from the outside in, until you get there, it's a different story. It depends what your end goal as well. It's what I was saying before is like you're not your job.
0: Yeah, I mean. You've just said it right there. And seeing those bigger goals, those bigger dreams beyond work is exactly the definition of getting balance for me.
1: I was actually having this discussion with my friend the other day. It's like, what are your proudest achievements? I mean, just got chatting about, it's
0: like,
1: <laughs> none of mine really have much to do with work. Like I've achieved some really cool things at work that I'm quite proud of, but like a lot of the other stuff has been like, like it's got nothing to do with work. <laughs> yeah, no, like it's something that doesn't really come up I guess which I find strange it changes as you get older too like I can't believe I'm saying that at age 30 because that is just bizarre but like the stuff that I wanted to do when I was 20 is very different to now like I said before like our end goals to buy a house in remote far north Queensland whereas when I was 20 like that wasn't the goal the goals to do as much field work as possible and get as many different skills as possible so yeah your goals change over time if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think acknowledging that it's nice to be able to step away from past you and be like, I used to want this, but now my goals and my priorities are shifting and I can shift with that. Mm. I think we stay in a role that we used to really want to do because we can't conceive that we could move to the, what we might want now.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> it takes time to work that out as well. Like it took me ages to work out what I actually wanted to do. I started engineering for a few years, didn't want to do that. And then I was like a touring musician and I did that for a bit. But I had to go do those things to realize, that, like, yeah, I actually don't want to do those as a job or I don't want to chase that anymore. And then, like, when I got to a college, I was like, oh, yeah, cool. This is it. Well, this better be it as well.
0: <laughs> Third time lucky, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like, man, I don't think I can do anything else except for look for lizards. So it takes a while to work out what you actually want to do. And then even when you get to the space of, oh, I think I might want to achieve this or do this as a job. Like, it takes time to get to that as well, especially if you go down that postgrad road. Like, that can take take years for that to pay off and you just got to be patient
0: yeah absolutely being patient with yourself and being happy to enjoy your own journey is such good advice so thank you for that
1: (laughs) that's all right yeah it's weird when people ask me for advice it's like man I'm still kind of working this
0: out (laughs) it's a lot easier to relate to someone who's just a little bit further than where you are than it is to relate to someone who's 70 years ahead of you
1: yeah that's what i've worked out not too long ago as well just asking some of my professors or like some of their senior colleges i've worked with it's like man when they started the industry was very different <laughs> and like some of those pathways just don't exist now
0: yeah and i think the industry is changing it's such a dynamic space already And just like any ecosystem, you know, when you've got the pressure of, in this case, it's a lack of funding going into wildlife conservation, it drives that change so quickly.
1: Yeah, I guess the other thing to say is like, you can jump between like different parts to it, like to the NGO sector, to consulting, you can switch that up. So you don't have to stay in one path. Like if you want to just make a bunch of money real quickly and like still gain skills, like maybe consulting works for you because it allows you to have that stability. That's really nice. And then you can jump into like the NGO sector or do something different. Like right now I work part-time for the South Endeavour project. They're kind of like a smaller bush heritage. Um, they buy up large portions of the land and just protect it for conservation. Basically like looking for bits of land that aren't represented in the national parks. And you can do both is what I'm getting at. I think that's important to keep in mind. But again, these things take time to evolve. Like that relationship I have with South Endeavour that started nearly four years ago as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's no rules because there's no pathway in a sense. So yeah, whatever know, right? you can do, like, you can you can have a go at it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I know, right? It's like, yeah, you can just work it out as you go and it generally works out. Yeah, and like, that's another thing. I used to talk about people like, how did you actually get to where you are? And everyone's got like this really meandering pathway that snakes around. Like It never is like a straight line.
0: Yeah, they do. And in, in that sense, you can't go wrong, right? If you just stay persistent, And you keep learning and you keep building your experience.
1: Yeah, it's like, maybe you can go wrong. Like, There's this really interesting statistic that says like, there's a large percentage of people that will leave this industry in the first five years because they did not like it. And I think it's like three out of five or two out of five. So it's like an alarmingly large amount of people who just leave environmental science for whatever reason. They can't get like a full-time job. They can't get enough money. Like there's no roles for them where they live like sometimes it doesn't work and that's one of the things that I found about going to university as like a mature age student and I'm like putting this in quotation marks because I wasn't that old um, is like a lot of people did environmental science or ecology and they weren't really that passionate about it yeah I tend to find they're the people that don't really get anywhere with it and they leave the industry pretty quickly and I'm not sure what that's a symptom of because I find it quite strange because it's like you're saying before like this is a passion job and it's pretty competitive
0: yeah even if you're studying it and I'm not by any means advocating study restudy restudy but whether you decide that you like it or not it's gonna form part of your journey
1: yeah yeah and it's like having a science degree rules Like <laughs> it's really good for learning, like critical thinking like, I, and I can't say much, too, because, like, I did, like, three years of an engineering degree and I was like, man, this sucks, I'm leaving. But I was the same, like, I got into engineering thinking, like, oh, yeah, this is, like, kind of, for me, I guess, didn't really like it that much, but it took me three years to work out like, I don't like it, so.
0: Yeah, like, those people that had to work their, quote-unquote, dream job so that they could know that they definitely never wanted to work that again. You can't be told.
1: But, like, I was a terrible student at that, but then when I got to environmental science like I took that very seriously and like I don't know many 18 year olds who know what they want to do like yeah it's bizarre and saying that my partner knew exactly what you wanted to do she like wanted to be an ecologist from the get-go yeah exceptions to every rule I guess
0: yeah absolutely well did you have anything else that you wanted to add in or anything else that you wanted to mention before we finish up today
1: yeah just check out South Endeavor Trust they're a really cool mob that protect a lot of lands that contain threatened ecological communities and threatened species. And they've got 20 reserves all around Australia, mostly in northern New South Wales the Snowy Mountains and far north Queensland. Really cool mob. And also Arab Recovery. Who have a very like special place in my heart have played a very integral part of my career.
0: Absolutely. And we'll definitely provide links not just to those two wonderful organizations in the show notes below, but also to your photography, which people should definitely go and check out if they haven't already. Thanks, man. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for another episode of It's a Wildlife. If you've been inspired by our discussion or have something to share, please get in touch. Leave us a review or share the love with your network. We'll chat soon.